One of my favorite, a lot of you are teachers. How many of you are teachers? Raise your hand if you're teachers, all right. Uh, one of my favorite hacks as a teacher was to give my students an, an assignment, individual assignment, I'll be very clear, individual, expected your work alone, uh, and I said, I need you to do this in class while I leave for a 15-minute meeting. There was no meeting, okay? I, they, they thought their teacher had really left, but in reality, what I did was I went to the courtyard, and I would get to the courtyard, and there was a place where I could see everybody in my classroom, but they couldn't see me. And I would just stand there with a pad and paper, and I would just make notes about what they all did. And their behavior was pretty predictable. A bunch of boys tried to reenact Lord of the Flies every time. Um, and they were silenced by the more conscientious students, and that they kind of got it together. There were a few kids every time that would take it seriously and they would sit down and do their individual work and they would work hard the whole time. There were a bunch that talked for the entire 15 minutes. They just talked, talk, 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 talk. And then, this is pretty incredible, there were a lot who cheated. I mean, the teacher wasn't there, right? So they would, they would talk and talk and they realize, oh, there's a couple minutes till he comes back and they just copy down the answers from everybody else. I would walk back in at the end of 15 minutes and say, hey, meeting's over, thank you so much, let me have your papers, I'm gonna grade them, and then I would write the grades on them based on the notes I'd made, and it was a very simple grading system. Those who cheated or were lazy got an F, even if they had everything correct. Those whom I saw working hard while I was gone, they got an A, even if the work was incomplete or they had some wrong. The whole point of the exercise was to teach a great work ethic, right? And we had marvelous conversations about this, as you teachers can imagine. Um, I thought of that experience. That all came to mind when I was reading Revelation chapter 2. Because in Revelation 2, Jesus emphasizes work ethic in his letter to Thyatira. By the way, they would have pronounced the name of their city as Thyatira, uh, but Thyatira sounds weird to me, so we're going to just call it Thyatira. All right. He leads a great discussion about it. Open your Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Let's see Jesus' discussion about work ethic with Thyatira. Revelation 2, let's read verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Stop there. Uh, as we summarize verse 18 uh, in your notes, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. You'll see there on the left-hand side, Jesus speaks to the Thyatiran church. And the depiction of Christ here is awesome. Now, like all these seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus describes himself in terms of what John had observed, the, the appearance of of Jesus that John related in chapter 1. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 14. John says, The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. Do you see? John saw the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And Jesus, in order to describe himself to the churches, he uses the same terminology that John did. Now, this particular combination here, fiery eyes and shining feet, that is supposed to make us think of something in the Bible that happened 700 years earlier. Same, same idea. It was something witnessed by a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 3. We learn that Daniel's pals, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I refuse to call them by their pagan names out of respect for their parents. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were thrown into a massive fire. It was very likely a huge oven for curing bricks. But God rescued them, and the Babylonian leader, Mr. Nezer, I mean, uh, Emperor Nebuchadnezzar, he saw the rescue, okay, Daniel chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, most Bible scholars think that 
it was indeed God the Son, Jesus, who was in the fire there. But regardless, whether it was Jesus or an angel, the phrase is what matters. Son of the gods means that he is impervious. He is glowing with glory, and he cannot be harmed. That's what the phrase means. So, with that in mind, now let's go back to the New Testament. And we need to remember that John has experienced something like this before himself. Long before he was taking down the Revelation, back when he was very young, John got a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. Read it with me, Matthew chapter 17, you take the underlined text. Then Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So what is God saying by all these revelations? Look, you, you put all those passages together and here's what you see. Jesus is truly deity. He is shining with blinding glory. The fancy Hebrew word for that is Shekinah. He's shining with the Shekinah glory of God. As an example, could you guys hit the, hit the worship setting? Go back to the blue setting if you could. Um, we're going we're gonna to do something for you here to try and give a little, little hint of what this must be like to see Jesus in his glory. Okay, so look at the cross back there, which is kind of blue right now because of the lights. And we're going to suddenly turn all the lights on their brightest and shine them right on the cross. Focus on the cross and go. Okay, that, that, your, your pupils just, they just did that, right? There's a lot of brightness here. And that's just a very tiny illustration. But it gives us a little feel, a little tiny feel of what... John saw, by the way, speaking of what John saw, remember that the, that's the first of the three things that are related in this book. Re Revelation 1.19 tells us the book's all about three things. John loves to do this. He, in every book he does, he likes to give a purpose statement, a, a clear thing that helps you understand how to use the book. So in Revelation, it's 1.19. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. What you have seen is chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Revelation is that vision of the glorified Jesus. Chapters 4 through 22, that's what will take place after, and that's the, the Great Tribulation and the Millennial Kingdom and the Eternal State. What we're studying is chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches that are, the things that are in Asia when this was penned. These seven churches, Jesus addresses, and, and through them he teaches all churches of all time. Okay, now that we know the speaker a little better, let's get acquainted with his audience. The city of Thyatira is all business. They are all business. It's a relatively small city, and yet it has a bustling economy. You, you, may, you may remember Thyatira if, if you read uh, the book of Philippians because the first convert to Christ on European soil was a lady named Lydia, or probably nicknamed Lydia, and she came to Christ here in the city of Philippi. First person to trust Christ on the continent of Europe. She was baptized in Philippi. She used her considerable wealth to help the Apostle Paul and all of his team. But her home base was Thyatira. Thyatira was originally in an old, old kingdom called the Lydian kingdom, which may be why they gave her the nickname Lydia. Uh, we don't know. By the time she lived and by the time this was written, uh, Thyatira was part of the Roman province. It's a Roman city of the province of Asia. Thyatira had a near monopoly on purple cloth dyeing, which was a very lucrative trade. Let, let me just tell you how, it's really hard for us to understand this, but this is how important purple cloth dyeing was. We have records, multiple records, of Caesarean emperors leaving Rome, traveling to Ostia, which Ostia Antica is the, the port of Rome, to go down and inspect the purple cloth shipment from Thyatira. In fact, we even have Augustus saying to one guy, this isn't dark enough, it's not deep enough, and he sent it back. This was, 
This is a very, very, very important trade. Now, purple trade wasn't the only source of business there. Sir William Ramsey, uh, in his wonderful book, The Letters of the Seven Churches, he gives some insight into the business of this city. Look, in the first century AD, Thyatira was renowned for its dyeing facilities and was a center of the purple cloth trade. Among the ancient ruins of the city, inscriptions have been found relating to the Guild of Dyers. Indeed, more guilds are known in Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman province of Asia. Let me just stop right there for just a second. That's really remarkable when you consider this. It's one of the least uncovered of any of the cities. Only Smyrna has less that is uncovered, archaeologically done. We, most of Thyatira, we don't, even, we don't even have access to. So with what little we've done, we found that many. And here's what they are. Inscriptions mention the following guilds. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. Now that is telling. The presence of so many guilds, and those are only the ones of which we have record today, so many guilds implies a robust, very business-friendly economy. In essence, Thyatira is like you guys. It's North Texas, okay? North Texas prides itself on being a very business-friendly economy. So did Thyatira. But there is one glaring difference, at least I hope it's a glaring difference, between here and now and there and then. In the classical world, those guilds each had their own deity. And they had special feasts and special festivals. George Beasley Murray explains why this could be very problematic for the Christians. Every craftsman and trader naturally belonged to his appropriate guild. The festivals of these societies included a common meal dedicated to a pagan deity. And frequently ended in sheer debauchery and licentiousness. The embarrassment for the Christians was obvious. How could they join in such social occasions, and they needed to for business, how could they join in such social occasions and maintain conscience unsullied? Close quote. Now, for many people that really isn't so different from today, is it? Work in our era also contains minefields for the conscience, right? Let, let me just ask this. If you're if your work has any ethical struggles in your employment, what you do every day, if there are any, ever any ethical struggles, raise your hand. Ethical struggles in your work. Yeah, okay, many, many of us. So, so we understand. We, we get their problem. And by the way, now we've got the speaker, we've got the audience, we've got their general problems, so let's go to the next verse. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know your last works are greater than the first. Jesus encourages this church. He knows the Christian's works. It's always worth noting that this is a game changer. The Lord knows. He knows us. He knows what we do. He is intimately engaged in the lives of Christians as only God can be. So think that through. Think. So when we, when we fear that we are laboring in obscurity, we're longing for human recognition or promotion or adoration or rewards, and they just don't seem to come, right? Or, or when we just want to quit. We just want to quit. Work is so hard. In fact, sometimes, you ever felt this? Sometimes we'll be so defeated that we start looking at a strong work ethic as some kind of cynical ploy. That's just a way for the man to control me, right? Yeah. When we feel like that, when we feel like quitting, when we feel like we're not noticed, we need to remember Jesus knows. He knows. We don't work hard because of people? No. We, we work hard. We work smart. We work empowered and encouraged because Jesus knows. Amen? Amen. And notice that Thyatira's last works are greater than their first. Wow. Can that be said of us? 
You know, most people, and sadly Christians are no exception, most people start strongly, but they limp to the finish line. We begin something with zeal, but then we start flagging an effort and production. Let me just let me just ask you this: If you've ever begun a diet, an exercise plan, a degree, a spiritual discipline, anything, you you've started something and you really started it well, but you didn't finish it well. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Keep them up, please. I see a couple of people who I know don't clean their rooms well, and th there you go. That's better. All right, hands down now. Thank you. Yep, me too. That's the human norm, which is what makes verse 19 absolutely astonishing. These believers have done better work later, outperforming even their typically zealous first works. Look, specifically, Jesus exalts their love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. That's a pretty good summary of the requirements for having a long-term impact. In other words, they're, they're doing the things that are required if you're going to build to last. Their love, let's go through them one by one, right? Let's start with love. Their love is agape. It's a great Greek term for self-sacrificial love. Agape is more than erotic love. It's more than friendship. It's even more than familial affection. Agape is, is a Christian taking the acceptance and the grace that God has put on them and giving it over another person, putting it to another person. Let me, let me show you this. I'm not sure if this is accurate, but it intrigued me this week. I was, I was reading, uh, actually a week before, I was reading a paper, uh, a scholarly paper, where this guy claimed, this scholar claimed, that agape, the Greek word agape, has its roots in a very, very old Sumerian word, pa. Pa. That's your fancy word for today. Pretend like you're from Kentucky and say pa. One, two, three, pa. Okay, good. That, that's the word. Uh, pa in Sumerian means somebody who protects another person. And no, I don't know if that's why it made its way as pa in our language. You know, a father, that is what fathers should do. I don't know that. I don't know if Signore Cereza Gastaldo is accurate, but I find it very intriguing because that is something agape does. Agape is self-sacrificial love. It is someone who gives of himself to protect and cover another. The Theatirians are praised for that. That's pretty cool. They're also praised for their faithfulness. Now, through John, Jesus uses this Greek word, pistis. Uh, this needs just a second of our attention, okay? Many Christians are familiar with pistis um, in the works of the Apostle Paul. You've run into it if you've read any of Paul's letters because he uses it all the time. And in Paul, it always means faith. Pistis means to trust in Jesus. That's always what it means. But in John, the word has, has more fluidity. And it can mean two things. It can mean trust in Jesus. It can mean faith. Or it can mean being responsible, living it out, faithfulness, all right? The context tells you which it is in John. But here's the problem. The context isn't clear in what we're reading today. We can't tell. That's why if, if we were to look at all our translations, different ones we're reading from, I bet you about half your translations would say faith and about half would say faithfulness. I lean toward faith just because faithfulness seems a little bit repetitive because endurance is mentioned two words later. Uh, and by the way, that brings up a very convicting thought if it does mean faith here. I, I, can, I can understand Christians becoming more loving as time goes by. That, that actually, I've seen that that makes sense. I get the idea that we can and will likely grow in endurance, that we'll become better servants as we develop, that our later works will be better than our, I, I, I get that. But I am absolutely agog that the Thyatirans grew in faith. I, I don't know about you, but in my experience, it is harder to trust Jesus as a Christian gets older. I mean that. There are, there are a number of reasons I've seen. One of the biggest is we, we learn. 
we learn some things, and so it's very easy for us to think we know lots of things. And then we quit relying on the Lord. We quit trusting Him. We don't grow in faith. Another one is we, we get consumed with our own power, our own responsibilities, especially as, as we advance in work, as we have children or grandchildren, and it's good. We're, we're putting energy into where God tells us we should put it. But it, it's very simple for it to slip into worrying all the time about how we need to perform and we're in control. We're not growing in faith, even if we're being faithful. Does that make sense? And here's maybe the ugliest one of all, and I, and I see this all the time, in myself and other people. When you're a new Christian, or a young Christian, and you have doubts, as everyone does. You know those days when you're like, man, there's no God. I don't, I'm just praying to the ceiling. I'm just talking to myself. There's just nothing. This is silly, right? What do you do when you're a young Christian? You call up another Christian. Hey, can we talk? I don't, it feels like I'm not really doing, and they laugh, and they say, yeah, everybody feels like that, and they take you to the scripture, and they take you to reality, and you think it through, and you look at the world, and you look at things, and you realize, oh my goodness, this is the only thing that makes sense. It is reasonable. Atheism takes a whole lot more faith than I'll ever have, that, okay, and, you're, and you grow in your faith, right? But what happens when you've been a Christian for a number of years? You have that moment of doubt, right? And you, you're not allowed to have that doubt because you've been Christian a long time, so you stuff it. You don't even think it through. You just stuff it, and it just eats at you. It festers, right? That's what we do, at least that's what I understand. Here's the problem. All those things together, here's the issue. The longer you're a Christian, the more likely you are to forget that you're just a little child. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, what did he say? His greatest prayer, Lord, I am a child. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I need you. And that's certainly true for us, right? But I forget that as I grow in Christ. And these people grew in faith. The older they got in their faith, the more they remembered their last works were better in faith. The more they remembered that they were children trusting the Lord. May that be true of us. Amen? Now, Jesus also praises their service and their endurance. That's cool. These are hardworking people. They don't stop serving just because the going gets tough. And, and by the way, don't assume that service and endurance are always easy to grow in. <laughs> many, many Christians start off serving the Lord in ministry with zeal, but later in life they stop. And, and, and here's what usually happens. It's usually because you have a sort of been there, done that attitude, you know? Well, I had a bad experience, or whatever you want to say. The, the, I used to serve, boy, for years I worked in the junior high ministry, and it was great, but I just got really tired of that. And Well, what have you, well nothing for the last 10 years. You, oh, so you're just sitting on your bottom all the time. Well, I, I, right? This is true. It's, I'm sure it's true for some of us. It's true for many, many Christians. And it's sad. Your last works aren't better than your first. If that's you, if you need to get back into ministry service, we have resources here to help. We really do. In fact, I'll, I'll just address everybody. Wherever you go to church, wherever you are in the world, you can take our excellent spiritual gifts inventory online, and it'll give you the results. If you want to figure out where you can be most fruitful, use our MyServe app that's on FBC. It's, it's very good. Let's be like the Thyatiran Christians and never stop improving in service. All God's people said, amen. All right, now, awesome as all that is, Sadly, it's not the whole story. Read the next section, verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. 
Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. As we say on the right side of our notes, Jesus also rebukes this church. Some woman in the church whom Jesus bitingly calls Jezebel, she's leading Christians into sin. Okay? Now, her name is probably not actually Jezebel, but Jesus calls her that. Why? Why would he call her Jezebel? Who is Jezebel? It's a reference. So that we'll know what this witch is like, Jesus calls her Jezebel. Who is Jezebel in the Old Testament? Who is it? Ahab's wife, the horrible, wicked King Ahab and his horrible, wicked wife. She like, I mean, she's, she wasn't read to as a child. She's really bad, okay? Here's what Jezebel did. She led tens of thousands of Israelis into the idolatry of Baal and Asherah worship. I, I don't want to go into what that is. Let, let me just tell you that it involved a lot of very sick, wanton sex and a lot of idol festival barbecues. Okay, that's Baal and Asherah worship. And that helps us understand why Jesus dubs her Jezebel. It's like she's like that old blister from Israel, whose character, by the way, is really nicely summarized by Chuck Swindoll. Look what, look what Swindoll says. He says, considering her, this Israeli queen's life, we can come up with four characteristics of a Jezebel-like person. Cleverly deceptive, manipulatively dominant, viciously scheming, influentially wicked. And by the way, I was reading that first hour when I was looking up there and I realized that is an incredible description of me at 14 years old, right there. Um, And not that I still can't be that way today. Zero in on this second one, manipulatively dominant. Um, the, the, The Jezebel of the Old Testament was all that and a bag of chips. She dominated Israeli culture so powerfully. How powerfully did she dominate? Let me tell you. She dominated so powerfully that she had the prophet Elijah running for his life. And Elijah was not a pansy, okay? He's a powerful guy running for his life. That's how dominant she was. Now, that has to be considered when we look at this leader, Jesus terms, the Jezebel of Thyatira. She teaches and deceives. She is a dominating force in this church. Now, she calls herself a prophetess. This is probably not the appropriate way to use that term in the New Testament. The appropriate way is a spiritual gift of prophecy, which means someone who takes God's word and helps apply it and disseminate it in people's lives. That's a wonderful gift. She's probably talking about the office of prophet. The office of prophet has been closed since Jesus fulfilled Moses' law. The office of prophet does not exist. That's someone who says God's words, and they can never be wrong about anything they say, either about life now or about something they foretell. If they're wrong on one thing, they are not a prophet, and they're to be stoned. Okay? Anybody ever tells you, kids, listen, anybody ever tells you that they are a prophet and they mean the office of prophet, don't talk to them. Okay? Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Get on the bus. Get out of town. Okay, you got the idea. All right. She probably means that, and that, that makes her a lying pretender. But can't you see how dominant a force she could be? She says she's an Old Testament prophet. She says these are new words from God that have to be obeyed, which is what prophets mean. By the way, her words have the advantage of helping the Thyatirans fit in with the culture around them, right? I mean, her, her decrees make it easier to do business in Thyatira. Some people might even claim that although her words disagree with God's word, Her activities actually protect the church. They protect them from persecution. I had an eerily similar experience this past week. It's fascinating. A California pastor I know, wonderful guy, he was conversing with another California pastor who understandably was very upset, and they wrote to ask my opinion on something they were talking about. What they were talking about was California Resolution 99, which, by the way, just passed the House in Sacramento last week. 
Here's Resolution 99. Here's a snippet of my friend's letter to me. Assembly Concurrent Resolution 99 calls on counselors, pastors, religious workers, educators, and institutions with great moral influence to stop perpetuating the idea that something is wrong with LGBT identities or sexual behavior. ACR 99 also condemns attempts to change unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion as unethical, harmful, and leading to high rates of suicide. Now, in their dialogue, the, the, uh, the other pastor, my, the pastor's friend, my friend's friend, he had said that instead of standing up and calling this the evil that it is, churches should just put their heads, let me, let me read from him. He says, churches should just put their heads down and weather the storm. The poor pastors who want to follow the spirit of the age, they should just be given room to do so. He said this, so yes, a few Christians will be led into unholy messes. That's terrible, but the church must survive. Better to tolerate some foolishness now and be around to help later when the storm clears. Close quote. And they wanted my opinion. <laughs> so I just asked, well, what does Jesus say? What, what does Jesus say about people who have a head down kind of thinking? There's something horrible going on, but they're just tolerating it. Here's what Jesus says. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. It doesn't matter how dominating, no matter how frightening, Christians must speak truth to power. We must and we must not tolerate evil. How do we speak truth, everybody, according to the Bible? In what? In love. So another California pastor, Michael Brown, he, he got in the discussion and he wrote a wonderful article actually that describes how he thinks, and I think he's right, how truth should be spoken in love in this particular case. So here's what he said. He reduced the whole thing down to four points. I think this is quite brilliant. He said, should we, talking about California pastors, should we avoid demonizing those in the LGBT community? What's the answer? Absolutely. You don't demonize humans that God loves. Should we be careful to separate issues from people? In, in other words, we remember there's a distinction between what is obviously a very aggressive agenda against churches and Christians versus hurting individuals. Should we keep that distinction, yes or no? Yes, certainly. And third point, should we proclaim God's love through the cross for every single human being? What is it, everybody? Read the next sentence. Without a doubt. Of course we do. And then Michael Brown said this, but we must not refrain from declaring what God's word plainly says. Homosexual practice is contrary to his will. And he does not bless or recognize same-sex marriages. And when it comes to transgender issues, biology is not bigotry. And the best solution for people struggling with gender confusion is to help them find wholeness from the inside out, close quote. Folks, that's a pretty good summary of the biblical plan, no matter what sin we're being asked to approve. Doesn't matter. But I will say this, when you stand up and speak truth in love, it doesn't usually go over well with the powerful Jezebels of the world. As we see in the text, she doesn't want to repent. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. What a brilliantly pithy statement. Jezebel doesn't change because she doesn't want to. Aren't you glad we're not like that? You know, it's, it's not a lack of truth or logic or care that makes us sinners dig in our heels. It's not. Let's be honest. It's the fact that we don't want to stop sinning, period. We like our sin, we want to justify it, we want to rationalize it, we want to excuse it, or we just want to shake our fist at God. Earl Wilson is a famous Christian counselor. He, um, he destroyed many lives when he began to sexually sin. Earl, through a couple of books, tells the story of how God brought him out of that beautiful story, and I've enjoyed all the books 
very much. But the critical moment, the critical change moment in Earl's life came when he was having a long talk with his dad. He'd been found out in his ugly sin. And Earl and his dad were talking, and Earl was rambling about all these different angles and influences and, 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 and people to blame and why this didn't happen and why that didn't happen. And I, this is what's causing it. I have these impulses. And, 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 and his dad listened very, very graciously. And then his dad said the most incredible thing. He said, Earl, stop it. You sinned because you wanted to. And that's right, isn't it? That's what we do. Yes, of course, there are very serious problems in all our lives. There are things that are snares that grab us. I understand porn is a snare for many, many Christians. Alcoholism is a trap that affects your very brain and actually horribly is on significant rise right now among Christians. Gambling is addicting. I know I'm not trying to make light of how hard these battles are, but the bottom line, Christian, let's be honest, is we remain ensnared in our sins because we want to. Listen to what a very wise friend wrote me. I was talking with him about this passage this week, and he wrote and he said, I really think your point, we sin because we want to, is important. The Lord has convicted me that the real problem is I'm trying to fill myself from broken cisterns, idols that offer short-term pleasure. In the end, they lead to destruction and are a vile offense to the Lord. God graciously gives us time to repent, but we don't want to. And, and sometimes, let me say this, sometimes we misunderstand repentance, which compounds the problem. We don't understand what it really is. It's a heart issue. It's a mind issue. Seminary professor Gary Richard explains, I like this so much I put it in your notes. Uh, he says, repentance is all about tearing down the idols of our hearts, destroying them completely. We do that when we take our hearts away from the idols that have possessed them and we give our hearts back to God. This has been one of the most helpful realizations, he says, in my own Christian life. For a long time, I looked at repentance in almost exclusively behavioral terms, right? I saw it as a 180-degree change in my outward actions, but all the while I gave little attention to the desires of my heart. That's sad. That's very sad because the word repent means change your mind. He goes on. More recently, I've come to see that genuine repentance must focus on the heart. It must begin with changing my heart's desires. I must take my affections away from whatever substitute gods I've been serving and fix them again on Christ. I must tear down every new idol of my heart, destroying it completely, and give my heart to Christ again, promptly and sincerely, as Calvin said so long ago. This is the daily struggle of the Christian life. Close quote. May we repent, change our hearts and minds. If we don't, if we don't, the judgment of Jesus is physical and serious. Look, look back at verse 22. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Children there meaning her followers. There will be sickness and death, can be death, as a result of unrepentant sin. Now, there are some who think these followers of Jezebel are Christians, and I will tell you that's very, very likely in the passage. These are believers who are embarrassing themselves, their church, and their Lord. If that's the case, there are other passages that talk about this as well. Same scenario was addressed by James, for example, many years before. Here's what God declares through James. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. That's what God can do. Now, other passages say he doesn't always do it, but he can do with unrepentant Christians. He can take them home early. Now, there are others who think these Jezebel followers are not Christians. They're churchgoers that are ancillary to the body of Christ in Thyatira. That's less likely, but even that has precedent. You know, in the Bible, every time non-believers try to mess up God's people, they try to misuse his truth, 
God can and usually does cause sickness and death. Think about the Philistines. They captured the Ark of the Covenant, right, that has God's word in it, Ten Commandments. Do you, do, you remember, do you remember the story of what happened? They capture the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. They take it to one of their main cities. There were five main Philistine cities on the coast. And the city it goes to, everything goes wrong. They're like, ah, hot potato, you guys take it for a while. And that city, everything goes wrong. Ah, you take it. So finally, it ends up in the city of Ekron. And the Ekronites, 1 Samuel 5, called all the Philistine rulers together. They said, send the Ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. But I know, I know what you're thinking, and it's a good question. You crafty, smart people. In your uh, Mr. Nezer voice, you're wondering, but what if the world threatens with serious physical violence as well? Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, do, you do you understand the question? Look, here's the deal. Why repent and turn to God if I'm still going to face physical punishment in the world? I mean... Really, God loves me, right? And Scripture doesn't say he always causes serious pain and, and, and temporal problems for people. But the world hates me, and they want to really harm me and kill me, right? So why not tick off the one that likes me and then just, just make happy as much as I can the one that doesn't? It's a good question, what would you say? What would you say? Why not? Why repent and turn to God and, and when you're going to get hammered anyway by the world? Most of you who are mothers would say number one, and you're right. Your mother was right, guys, when she told you this. You do what's right. Scripture's true, and there is always great reward in doing what's right. But number two is important as well. Here's the second reason we follow God's word, even when the world's going to hammer us. Jesus' rewards are way beyond just this earth, okay? In relation to eternity, hold your fingers apart and show me how long this life is. Uh, your fingers are too far apart. You get the point, right? He has blessings that are eternal. All the world can do is mess with the temporal, Right? So in answer to your question, Mr. Nezer, we should probably be much less afraid of worldly conflict and more concerned about the eternal impacts of missing out on stuff because we ignore God's word. Martin Luther, as so many things, he said it best 500 years ago. Look what he wrote. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo. His doom is sure. One little word, very clever. He's playing off the idea that Jesus is the word of God. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is, how long everybody? Forever. You want to sing it, don't you? All right, pick it up. Pick it up at Let Goods and Kindred Go. Come on. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Big finish. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Very good. All right. What we do matters. 
Look, Jesus reminds in verse 23, there is a reward coming at the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that is directly tied into what works we do in the body. That's a whole lot more than anything the world has. The rest of the letter expands on that truth. Here, let me put it this way. To be rewarded, you need to keep Jesus' works. Uh, verse 23, pick it up. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known these so-called secrets of Satan, as they say. By the way, that's exactly how Jesus said it. I don't know if you know that. Um, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I'll also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus does not add burdens. That's what legalists do. He just says, hold on to what you have. Oh, by the way, the best rendering might actually be hold fast. Uh, we, we, we learned, we met Echo uh, last time we studied together, which means to have a close relationship. Well, here, Echo is put together with krateo, which is a word for seize. So, Echo krateo probably could best be rendered hold fast. Of course, you're asking in that ridiculous Mr. Nezer imitation, so what do they have to hold fast to? Great question. Thanks for asking. Look again at what Jesus praised them for. They have love and faith and service and endurance and the chance to avoid doctrinal and lifestyle impurity. You know what? If you hold on to those things, you, you're building to last. You're doing well. Amen? That's worth hanging on to. Now, verse 26 and on gives a kind of fun twist to the overcomer formula that Jesus has used in every one of these letters so far. This time, notice, Jesus promises reward to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. But, but he adds an and. And who keeps his works. Let me explain. The one who conquers, overcomes, that's a person who believes in Jesus for salvation. I think it's the best way to take that passage. It's the exact same rendering that he gives in 1 John chapter 5, honikon. 1 John 5, John said, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The overcomer is the believer in Jesus. They conquer because they are in Christ. The first three letters to these churches that we read, they promised eternal blessings to everyone who's a conqueror because they have believed in Jesus. But this one is different. Look, this time the rewards seem to be not just for believers, but believers who keep Jesus' works to the end. That is for believers who become followers, who follow Jesus in faith and love and service and endurance. This, this statement's very similar to a parable Jesus gave. Do you, do you remember the parable of the talents? Parable of the talents. It, it's a story, and in it, Jesus shows how, how a great work ethic, working well, leads to, leads to millennial kingdom responsibility. His lesson is a strong work ethic, if it's empowered by God, leads to great rewards in the kingdom to come. Now, look at the two rewards mentioned here for the one who, who follows. The first one is to judge with Jesus. The quote, by the way, is taken from Psalm 2. Amazingly, this is mind-blowing. If we have a healthy work ethic to the end, Numbskulls like us are going to be transformed into people who are worthy to wisely judge the nations. Is that incredible? Idiots like us are going to be turned into people who are worthy to be in position to judge. The second great reward is says to have the morning star. I don't know what this means. It, it seems like it's one of two things. There are a lot of people who think it means Jesus. There are others who think it means Satan. Why the confusion? Here's why. Jesus is, in another spot in the Bible, called the morning star. However, they already have Jesus. 
So the other possibility is that these conquerors are going to have a say in the judgment of Satan. Here's why. Isaiah chapter 14 uses the term morning star, and it seems to be talking about Satan. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. Now, if the morning star in Revelation 2 is the same referring to Isaiah 14, then, then it's another passage pointing out that Christians will join Jesus as judges in his kingdom, and they will even judge Satan. Now, whatever the meaning of the rewards, this is clear. Listen, if one wants to build to last, it takes work. We need to keep working at it every day. Remember, remember Dr. Richard's comment? I must tear down every new idol of my heart, destroying it completely, and give my heart to Christ again promptly and sincerely, as Calvin said so long ago. This is the daily struggle of the Christian life. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will, by your grace, we will grow. I, I, I pray that our last works are better than our first. Especially, you know, you know, I'm so blown away by the idea that they grew in faith. And I pray we do as well. That every day we remember what little children we are and how desperately we need you and how beautifully you provide and meet us in that need. You know. And I pray that we'll know that you know. In Jesus' name, amen.